my message today uh, is part of our look at Romans chapter 5 in the early verses. Um, I'm calling this message, What Will We Become? Last week, we asked the question, or why were we made? And we answered it with, we were made for God's glory. And we tried to um, explain that. I tried to. And today, we're going to um, ask this question, what will we become? What will we become? And I, I want to start with uh, Romans 5, chapter uh, verses 1 through 5. These are the words of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These are the words of God. Have you ever admired someone so much that you wanted to be like them? I don't mean that you admired someone's singing ability and you have no passion or desire to sing. Or you admired someone's athletic ability and you don't really care about being an athlete in their persuasion. I'm thinking more about their insides, who they are thinking about maybe a teacher that you had. Someone who just really lit up your world in a way that made you want to be like them. An aunt or an uncle, and you thought, that's the kind of aunt or uncle or father or mother I want to be. A coach, for many of us, some of our first experiences with admiring someone that we want to be like came through coaching. Someone that worked hard and showed great character in a lot of um, difficulty and persevered and we just thought, man, I want to be like them. The poise they have, the dedication they have. It's, it's hard not to admire someone's character without wanting to be like them. I mean, I, I, I think it's almost axiomatic that when you see someone's inner beauty, their character, their courage, their patience, their wisdom, it's just automatic. You, you want that. And in those moments, you want a good thing. You want things for the right reasons, usually when you're looking at someone's beautiful character and you want that for yourself. Well, Peter had that experience. For three years, he traveled, he lived, he ate, he drank, he sang, he spoke, he slept, he rested, he did work with Jesus for just about every day of his life as far as we know, for three years straight. He was with Jesus all the time. And after three years, he had seen such beauty and goodness and strength in Jesus 
that he wanted to be like Jesus. And I'm sure Peter had selfish ambition, but he also had a God-given desire to be like Jesus because he saw that Jesus was beautiful and he wanted to be beautiful in that same way. He loved Jesus and he loved who Jesus was. Jesus had captured his soul. So much so that on the night that he heard these words from Jesus, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. That he was captured by that. He saw it as true and worthy. That it made someone as beautiful as they could be. I don't think Peter would have used the word beautiful necessarily. But there was a beauty he saw in Jesus because when Jesus said on that night that Peter would become very ugly in the matter of a few hours and telling Peter and all the disciples that this night they would all fall away from Jesus in the face of trouble, Peter knew deep in his heart that was not who he wanted to be. Peter knew that was an ugly thing, not a beautiful thing. And so he protested and he said, Lord, not me. Even if all these fall away, I never will. I will go to my death for you. Jesus didn't rebuke Peter and say, Peter, that's selfish. That's too ambitious. That's too arrogant. No, Jesus knew that was a beautiful desire that Peter had. And it was a good thing that he wanted to be the kind of person that would lay down his life for his friend. But in a few hours... Just after Jesus had predicted Peter's cowardice and desertion, just after Peter couldn't stand that and said, no way, I will love you to the end. A few hours later, Peter was lying to servant girls about whether he knew and followed Jesus. And soon after that, while his Lord and King and teacher and dear friend, the person that, that God himself had revealed to Peter was the Messiah, as Peter had said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. As that dear, precious friend, brother, Lord, was being horribly, cruelly, criminally murdered, Peter was hiding and he was crying bitter tears because all he could do was hide. Peter wanted to be like Jesus, but at the most important moment, he found out that he was very unlike Jesus. Now, a few weeks later, just maybe not even two months later, Peter is talking in Jerusalem about Jesus, and he's not afraid of anybody. He's talking to thousands of people and he's not afraid of anyone. And suddenly, thousands of people hearing Peter's words are doing something that we have no record happened when even Jesus spoke. They're repenting. They're becoming saved, truly saved. And those same leaders who killed Peter's Lord are filled with jealousy 
And they want to kill Peter too. And they threaten him. And they tell him, stop preaching Christ. It wasn't serving girls who came and commanded him to do that. It was the very men who killed Jesus. And Peter tells them, no, I won't stop. There is no other name among men given under heaven by which mankind must be saved. We cannot speak but of what we have seen and heard. So they throw him into prison. So an angel opens the doors and frees Peter and he could go back and hide or travel to a different country. Even Jesus said when they preach, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. But Peter doesn't flee anywhere. He goes right back to the city in public and he starts preaching Jesus again. And so those leaders who killed Jesus and could kill Peter call him to account and say, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. And Peter says to them, we must obey God rather than men. Sorry. So then they beat Peter. They physically abuse him. And Peter's reaction, he doesn't hide, he doesn't cry. He doesn't even protest, which I suppose he certainly had a right to do. No, he walks out of that beating rejoicing, happy, joyful that he was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And then he goes right back to preaching Christ as Savior and Lord. Of course, Peter wasn't perfect during his life on earth, and that gives us hope too, right? He will make mistakes again. He will even give in to fearing people again at times. We'll see that in the book of Galatians. But the trajectory of his life would never be the same. He would never stop repenting. He would never stop living for Jesus. He would, in fact, in the end, lay down his life for his friend and for his friends in the gospel. He would be martyred. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that here in this dramatic and small and and rather condensed picture of Peter's life, we see a hint of the radical, hardly imaginable, hardly believable destiny for all of us in Christ Jesus. This is where we are going. This is where we are going. This Lord that we admire, that we see, that we wish we could be like. His apostles that we admire, that we see, that we wish we could be like and we aren't. We are going to be like Jesus. We are going to be like his most dedicated followers. In the final analysis, I dare to say this, but it's absolutely true. Our final state will be better than Peter's. It will be better than Paul's. It will be better than anyone we've ever seen on earth except our Lord's. Like I said last week, we reflected on the truth from Romans 5, 1 through 2, that we were made for God's glory. His glory. We were made for it. And I have defined God's glory as his worth, his nature, his value being perceived by us being apprehended by us. That's what his glory means. It means we can see his value. What's inside him becomes visible to our hearts, understandable to our understanding. And we were made to experience this. We were made to know and to feel and delight and be infinitely and joyfully satisfied by the greatest friend any of us could ever have. We were made to be kept at peace and in joy by his kindness and gentleness and goodness and love. We were made to be provoked and spurred on 
and satisfied by his holiness. We were meant to be awed by his great power. That's our destiny. That's why we were made. And it is central to what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 2 of Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? That's what we've been saying for our two messages. This is why we were justified by the blood of Jesus. This is why God made peace with us. This is why we stand in his grace so we could experience him. We could know him. We could see him with the eyes of our heart. Those are all synonymous phrases for we could see his glory. We could perceive his worth. We could taste and see that the Lord is good. That's getting who God is in our hearts. That's what it means to glorify God and exalt in him. And it's what we were made for. It's our destiny. But there is another aspect of our destiny that is enfolded in this promise of experiencing God's glory. And that is this, that not only are we going to experience the fullness of God's glory and worth, we ourselves, us broken, staggering, stuttering, faulting people, groping in the dark for Jesus, up and down, up and down, we ourselves are going to be transformed to reflect, to reflect perfectly that same glory and that same worth and that same beauty that is in God and in his son. You and I are going to look perfectly, truly like God the son in our hearts, who we are. I'm not talking about Jesus having brown hair. We're all gonna have brown hair. I'm not talking about Jesus having green eyes. We're all gonna have green eyes. I'm talking about our hearts, who we are as people and the invisible person of our soul. We're gonna radiate with glory. We're gonna reflect his value and our, his worth. We will perfectly show that worth in us. This process has already started in all of us. But I think that the infinite change that we're gonna see is gonna be so radical that we can barely taste what it's gonna be like when we see Jesus in the resurrection and are transformed. One day, you're gonna have a new body to help you express and receive all this glory and reflect it. One day your mind, which is somewhere between heaven and hell every day, is going to be fully on the side of heaven and be completely transformed. And one day your spirit, which I believe is already perfect in Christ, is going to have no problem getting through your mind and out your body. You will perfectly reflect the goodness, the love, the holiness, the value, and the worth of your Savior. So when I told you about Peter... And Peter's transformation, it wasn't about Peter's self-improvement, self-restoration project. It's about God creating a new Peter, a changed Peter. And Peter, even though he's not done yet, beginning to reflect his Savior in a way that in himself he has no power to create. Because God is the one who saves and God is the one 
who gives the new birth, and God is the one who oversees the whole process from beginning to end and ensures that the work he began in you, he will complete. And that's why Paul says we rejoice right now. Project unfinished, potholes everywhere. (laughs) For some of us, it's police line, do not cross. Scaffolding raised and broken. And yet God says through his apostle, rejoice. This is where you're going. This is your destiny. Point three, scripture guarantees this. I don't want you to just hear it from me. I want you to hear it from God's word. And it says this in many places. I'm gonna highlight just a few. First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are, now already, children of God. And, or but, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There's a lot more work that has to be done. And we can't even barely see it. But, he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. Now we see the beauty partially. We don't see perfectly. We don't value him as we should. But then when we see him perfectly, we will value him just as we should and we will be transformed by that vision of who he is into that same glory. Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel. Another way of saying, this is why you were saved, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28, 29, this is famous, many of you know this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what purpose? To become conformed to the image of his son. In your heart, you will look just like Jesus, your brother. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. He's saying the Holy Spirit does this, but what's he doing? He's showing you who Jesus is deep in your heart, and through that faltering, shadowy, imperfect view of Jesus, you are being transformed into that same image. Degrees, glory to glory. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes place over a lifetime. And then it will finish in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There are other passages I could cite, but these should be clear enough to allow us to see that God's destiny for us is not only to experience the fullness of his glory and delight in him, but to reflect that glory perfectly in his son. This is really, really great news. Really great news for people who have seen their imperfection, have acknowledged their sin, are struggling to grow in Christ. It is great news for people who do treasure Christ now, but not as much as they want and long to. For people who are beginning to look like Christ sometimes, but other days just see so much more ugliness. This is great news for me and great news for you. 
Because when you open the Bible and you see the compassion of Jesus for people, because God is so kind, brothers and sisters, you are seeing your future you. And you, I know many of you already have a lot of compassion. It's, it's not where it should be. It's only going to grow. He's only going to make it more and more so that it will be a perfect compassion. When you open the Bible and you see the absolute unwavering devotion of Jesus to his Father above all things, you are seeing your future devotion to the Father above all things. He's working it in you now if you're his but he's going to complete it. And it's going to be perfect right now, one day, and it isn't right now. When you see his wisdom about life, how he just understands what's right, what's wrong, what to do, you see his sanity. He doesn't minimize what should be maximized. He doesn't maximize what should be minimized. When you see his courage, when you see his patience, when you see his sacrificial love, that's you. That's the future you. That's who you're going to be perfectly. When you see how he entrusts totally, completely, his soul to his father with absolute commitment and absolute trust, you're seeing your own trust in the father someday. It's begun in you now. You groan because it's not where it should be. You struggle against your sin. You struggle against your unbelief. One day you're not going to have to struggle anymore. When you see Jesus' sinlessness and purity and single-minded desire to live for his Father's pleasure and the good of others, you are seeing the destiny of your own heart when it will be sinless and absolutely pure, and have a single-minded desire to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself as much as, as much as is possible. You are not there yet. You are in many ways, and I am in many ways, far from it, frustratingly so, but it is where you are going. And so Paul says, rejoice. You've been justified. God has made peace with you. He has put put you in the realm of grace all for this purpose, that you will make it to this place of being beautiful in ways that you are not right now and you wish you could be. This is why Paul says in Philippians, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. It's where you're going. God wants you to believe that. He wants you to rejoice in it. Martin Luther put it this way beautifully. I love this. This is such a beautiful, sane, hope-giving truth. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are going, growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. 
That's a beautiful truth. You might want to take a picture of that with your phone. I'll email it to you if you want me to. Point four, uh, how this happens. Well, I'll, let's leave that up there again. Go back one. I see some of you guys raising your phone. Point four, how this happens. This is its own sermon series. Books are written about this. But I want to touch on one crucial element that I think is, is, is part of the complex of this whole passage in Romans 5. But we have to go to another place to understand it. Before Paul says... We are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which I'm defining as being able to experience God in all of his fullness and be transformed into that same image. He sets up the foundation for why that is absolutely going to happen. He says, God has justified you. He's poured out his blood for your sins, past, present, and future. He's made peace between you and him. No more hostility, no more judgment. His attitude is gonna be peace towards you. He's placed you in this realm of grace. He says that we have access by grace. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then he crescendos it. So that's why we have hope that we're gonna see and reflect the glory of God. He's basically saying the gospel and your faith in the gospel has ensured this. And I want to go to a place that talks about this maybe more than any other place I know about right now. But I need to ask your patience because Paul says, writes many things that are difficult to understand. That's what Peter says, and I agree with Peter. And so as I try to unpack something here in 2 Corinthians 2 and 4, I, I, I want to ask for your patience. And I need to ask the Lord for help because I feel this is especially a difficult place. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray again. Lord, uh, please help me to honor your word. Help me be as clear as I can. Please, God, speak to us through these things. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in 2 Corinthians 2 through 4, Paul is dealing with this question of what we're going to become. And he's, he's explaining how we are going to become perfect reflectors of God's glory. How we're gonna become just like him. And here's how he says it happens. But we all, with unveiled face, uncovered face, I'll try to explain that in a moment, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. There's that growth process. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's God, the Spirit, who does this. Then many verses later, he says, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. This is another reference to the fact that this is God who says this. It is God who does it. It is God who has the power to say, light shall shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light, that's our ability to see, of the knowledge, that's understanding, of the glory of God, of God's value, God's worth, in the face of Christ. 
in the face of Christ. It's being able to see Jesus Christ as he is that makes everything happen. And being able to see Jesus Christ as he is comes from God the Father working through God the Holy Spirit. I hope you can see that in this passage. But, but I want to try by using the illusion that Paul makes in this set of verses. Paul, earlier in this chapter, takes us back to the book of Exodus. When God is revealing not Christ to Israel, it's very important. He's not revealing Christ to them. He's revealing the law to them, his holy commandments. During this time, Moses is leading Israel. It's very hard for him. And he pleads with God to reveal himself to Moses. Moses wants more hope, more understanding for why he's going through all he's going. He wants more comfort. He wants more fuel for the journey. And he says, God, show me who you are. God tells Moses, Moses, no one can see my face and live. You cannot handle it. It's a whole other message, but it's true. And he tells Moses, okay, Moses, I will do this. I will cover you. I don't understand all this stuff, but this is just what God says. He says, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to set you in a rock. And I'm going to cover you so that when I come near you, when I pass by you, you won't get killed by my holiness and my purity. You'll get it, it's almost like God is saying, you'll get a touch, you'll get a taste, you'll get a, a slim sight. And so God does that. And we see in Exodus 34, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand that was for the law, the commandments of God. Very important to keep that in mind. This is all in the context of the giving of the commandments and the laws of God. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses. This is a pre, they call it a, a theophany, a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. I guess, I wasn't there, I don't know. But in some way, God stands there with Moses and he and Moses calls upon the name of the Lord. He says, Lord, Lord. And then the Lord talks about himself to Moses. God reveals himself to Moses as the glorious God who forgives and the glorious God who punishes. And then he gives his law to Israel. Laws which they obey, if they obey, they will live. And laws which if they disobey, they will die. And later in the chapter we read, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony, that's the law again, were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. See, it's important to know that the author in Exodus and Paul are going at links to remind us that whatever God is doing, central to it is the giving of the commandments, the giving of his laws, which must be obeyed. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. It shined and they were afraid to come near him. I just think this is one of these moments where the Bible just whispers, this is true to me. Like the response of these men is they don't worship Moses, they don't rejoice, they don't, they're not like, wow, this is amazing, let me see that. They are freaked out. 
I mean, and, and that's exactly how a human being would be. If I walked in here and my face was glowing, like it was, it was, there was light coming out of my face, you all would be freaked out. You would not know what to do. You would, like, you would get the heck out of here. You would probably never come into this place again unless you were kind of weird. And that's what happens. Moses comes off that mountain having been passed by God's glory and God doesn't even show him much. God covers Moses. He gets close enough, but just that much makes Moses' face shine with, because he's been touched by that brightness, by that glory. It's like the moon and the sun. The sun, you look at the moon and you're like, wow, that moon is really bright. What you're really saying is that sun is really bright. And it's shining on the moon. And that's what happened to Moses' face. Something of God's glory was reflecting off of Moses. But it was a kind of glory. Okay, put that in a little box over here. I don't know, what does he mean? It's a kind of glory. Okay, just put it over here. See, Moses comes to Israel with these tablets and upon those tablets is the law of God. His face is temporarily shining because a limited visible manifestation of God's glory has passed by him. It scares Israel so much. Moses has to put a veil over his face and they can't see his glory anymore. It's too scary. I'm putting a veil over this. I can't see it. You freak me out. I don't want that. All in the context of the giving of these commandments. Do them and you will live. Don't do them and you will die. The point is, Though, Moses saw God's glory and he was changed. And that's the piece that Paul says connects us to this story. Paul says this is true for us as well. We also cannot see God's glory, his nature, his value, his worth without being changed. That's what we and Moses have in common. When anyone sees God, really, they're changed. But here is the crucial difference between what Moses and the Israelites went through with the giving of the law and what we go through with Jesus. To Moses and Israel, God reveals himself primarily and particularly as the one who gives the commandment and says, obey these commandments and you will live. Disobey and you will die. He shows his holiness through the giving of the holy laws. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. Those holy laws have no power in themselves to give you the power to obey them. So Paul calls them the ministry of condemnation. He calls the glory of those laws, the glory of that moment with Moses, the ministry of death. I didn't make that up. It's right there in 2 Corinthians because all the glory of the law can do is tell you what is right. It cannot give you the power to do it. So who wants that? Who wouldn't want to put a veil over the face of that kind of glory and be afraid of it? Because it's hopeless. It's glorious. It's good. It's beautiful. But for sinners for people who want a little of God and not a little of God and only so much of God and you can have this much God but not this much because I want this and I want this and 
I want to go my way most of the time. Sometimes I want to go your way, but then other times I don't want to go your way. I'll take, you know, it's like we're at the cafeteria of God. I want this and this, but I don't want that and that and that. God's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to kill you with my holiness. I'm going to destroy you with my holiness. You cannot abuse me like that. You cannot deny me like that. You just, you cannot do it and live. I'm too pure for you. I don't compromise. I don't take shortcuts. I don't deal in selfishness. I don't deal in half-hearted loyalty. That's not my universe, and I won't have it in my universe. I won't have it wreck my universe. So you can't be in my universe if you're going to stay in that place. But in Jesus Christ, God does not come merely to proclaim the law and the commandment to obey. No, this is very different. He comes near to proclaim saving mercy and grace to those who have disobeyed his commandments and who have so wrecked themselves that they can't keep his commandments. He comes to proclaim in Jesus Christ what he'd never proclaimed with Moses, his very own blood poured out for your rejection of him. He came in Jesus Christ to proclaim what the law never proclaimed. He came to proclaim his own spirit to come into you and change you from the inside out so that you would have power to live for God that the law could never give you. Paul calls this the ministry of the spirit. He calls it life. The old covenant of law brought by Moses was good and holy and right, but it could only proclaim God's holiness by showing us his law. It could not give us either eternal forgiveness and it could not change us from the inside out. But now through Christ, God comes inside us, shows us who he is. He's not just passing by us on a mountain. No, he gets inside us, reveals himself to us and stays forever That's what the gospel says. That's why Paul rejoices when he says, oh God who said light, please next slide. God who said light shall shine out of darkness. I will not let them die in their sin. No, I will command life. I will command life. God who can do anything says light shall shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul, you are something else. (laughs) But it all means something. You know, you read a sentence like that and you're like, of the thing that was done in the thing that was in the process of the, but I think Paul is like, I'm doing the best I can. Like this is, this, this is too immense and too incredible to be able to cut any of these phrases out. They all mean something. When you stop and you study and you really work, it's it's incredible. 
It's incredible. It's awkward and hard. And But what Paul, I think, is saying here is that whenever anyone, by God's grace, truly sees Jesus, he doesn't mean see him as a six-foot carpenter with right brown eyes and brown hair and green eyes. No, he sees the glory, the inherent value and worth and nature of Jesus with the eyes of their heart, Paul calls them. When anyone sees that, not the old covenant commandments which we can't obey and, and to a large degree we, we, we don't even, we struggle to want to obey, but when they see instead the infinitely worthy blood of God's own son poured out for our eternal justification and his Holy Spirit promised to free us from sin, when they see that and they count on that and the truth of that and the beauty of that and the worth of all that, when they see all that, they are changed by that vision. They are changed by that value in Jesus, that he'd be that good and that powerful. When we're convicted that that's true, that not only are we convicted because we need to recognize our sin, but we're not just left alone with our sin. We're convicted that this Jesus loves us anyway, pours out his blood for us anyway, and will change us. When we see that, and we believe that's true, we are changed. That is how we change. We see the worth and the value of Jesus, not only as the lawgiver, but in his blood poured out for sinners and in his Holy Spirit given so that we can actually follow him again and have power to overcome our sinful hearts. When we first see that, we're changed. And as we keep seeing that, we keep banking on that. We keep putting our hope, not in ourselves, but on that Jesus. We keep being changed. We continue to be changed. So this isn't a one-time thing. This is your life. Martin Luther said, our whole lives, we're repenting and believing all the time. Repenting and believing. That's what we're brought into in Christ. Because we're never done on this earth, right? So that brings us to 2 Corinthians 3.18 again. But we all, with unveiled face, meaning we're, we're not so terrified by the law that we have to cover our face or cover the face of that glory. No, we can open that up. Let's see it. We're seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus in all his grace and mercy. And when we see that, we're being transformed into that same image of that amazing Jesus from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. You're this much glorious right now. Lord willing, in two years, you'll be this much glorious. You might think it's this much glorious, but God actually knows it's actually this much glorious. And then, boom, you die and it is infinite glorious. Like you can't, you can't hit. It's done. You perfectly reflect Jesus. He looks at you and says, ah, my masterpiece. That's what you were made for. So as we keep seeing Jesus this way, we keep believing in him, we keep holding on to this gospel, we keep continue to change. And, and the end result is finally, that first John passage is actually seeing all his grace and all his goodness perfectly. I think that's why we get resurrection eyes. I mean, I, I think, really, I think we can't handle how great and glorious and beautiful he is we got to get a new body to see it. And when we see it, boom, I mean, everything's just, everything's perfect. In a really good way, not in a monk, OCD perfect way. <laughs> like, a beautiful way. 
So my, my application is, is this. It's just see and rejoice. I, there's a lot of things we could say. There's, there's a lot that we, we can, and as we go into this passage more, especially as we talk about suffering, we're gonna talk about how God does this through really hard things, how he has to do it through really hard things. There's no way that he can avoid bringing us through really hard things and get us where he wants us to be, which is ultimately where we wanna be. We have to go through a lot of hard things. We can talk about ways that we cooperate with the spirit. We can talk about prayer and, and trying to stay close to his word, which are really important. We, they're all part of us cooperating with the spirit and kind of doing that thing that Paul talks about, Philippians 1, where he says, work out your salvation, not for it, not for it. Work it out, you have it already. Work it out with fear and trembling, with respect and humility before God. Why? Because you gotta do all the work, it's all up to you? No, because it is God who works in you to will, to want, and to do according to his good purpose. We are at work because God is at work in us. The spirit of Jesus comes to live inside us. He gives us new desires, works in our good wants to overcome bad wants, which are still there. So there's much we can say about all that. But I want to end today where Romans 5, 2 ends. Rejoice. Rejoice. A really important part of you getting to this place that God is calling you is that in the face of all that you aren't, that you wish you could be like Peter that night, that horrible night, you would just have stubborn hope and rejoice that God is is going to do this. For those of you, brothers and sisters, who who want to be like Jesus, like really, you do, and you know you're not yet. You feel how far you are from what you wish you were. God would say to you, rejoice. Stubborn rejoice. Because he is faithful. Because he began a good work in you. He's going to do it. He's going to complete it. He has already justified you with his blood. He has already made peace between you and God. God is not your enemy anymore. He is your friend. You can feel he's your enemy. You can feel there's hostility. It's a lie. If you've acknowledged your sin and turned to Christ Jesus for his mercy, it's a lie that God is hostile towards you. Now, if you don't really care about Jesus, if your attitude is, I'll live how I want to live, I'll check off, do some church things here and there. We need to talk. But if your attitude is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me. I want to follow you. I want to love you. I want to see you and treasure you. I have good news for you. Rejoice. Your battle with sin and doubt is going to end. And it's going to end well. Your battle with bitterness and clinging on to offenses you fight to let go. Your battle with laziness when you want to serve your family and you want to serve faithful employer. It's going to end. Your battle with fearing people more than God, which you know is a prison for you and doesn't glorify God and you wish you could be better than that. It's, that battle's going to end 
in, in God's favor and your favor. Your battle with anxiety about the future that clings and crushes and tempts you and you run to God and you're working on that and you're trying, the battle is gonna end and you can rejoice now that it's gonna end well. It's gonna go. If you're fighting lust, you haven't made peace with it, you're not fine with it. If you're fighting it and you're asking God for help and you're struggling, but you're fighting, it's gonna end. Your battle with anger, you, gosh, I did it again, I blew it again, I said that sharp thing again, oh Lord, rejoice today. It's gonna end, that battle, God wants you to rejoice, it's gonna end, and you're gonna be better, you're gonna be done with it. Your battle with hoping in money. Your whorish heart that prostitutes its affection towards the things of this world and hope in this world that you know grieves your father and is, is just giving him so much less than he deserves. Ugh! Oh, money, if only I had money. It's idolatry. You hate it. I hate it. God, forgive us. It's gonna end. We can, other sermons, we can talk about fighting and how we need to fight, because we do, we should. But today I want you to rejoice. Because that's what Paul says, rejoice. And I want to stay where Paul is today. Rejoice. These battles are coming to an end. All these enemies have been dealt a fatal blow in the cross of Christ, in his blood. They are as good as dead. You are on your way to perfect love, perfect gentleness, perfect kindness, being really, really great. It's not a joke. Perfect in, in all the things that Jesus is perfect in. Perfect in love. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, kindness. It is coming. It is sure. Rejoice. And for those of you who this doesn't touch you, you're kind of indifferent to it, please let me talk to you. Something is really wrong. Maybe it's because I'm not a very good preacher. But we can't be indifferent about this and, and go on being indifferent and be his. It's not a good sign. So let me talk to you if you're indifferent about it. But I, I, don't, I think there's a lot of people in this room who are longing to be all that Jesus wants them to be. And I know it, it's true of your hearts. So brothers and sisters, today rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You're gonna know him perfectly. You're gonna love him perfectly. You're going to be thrilled by him. You're going to be set forever in peace by him. And you're going to look like him. It's going to be good. Amen.